0: And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temen.
1: Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Tuesday, November 7th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, a call for disruptive change in how the government assesses technology. Plus, an NIH health executive is also a diversity champion. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, customer experience at the Homeland Security Department is getting the type of visibility and attention to maybe spark some change. It's high on Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas's list of priorities, and the CX office itself is in a hiring surge. Federal News Network's Jason Miller got an update from the DHS Executive Director for Customer Experience. Dana Chisnell.
2: So we were five or six people. We also ran a pretty big hiring action last September uh, using the SMEQA format. This is uh, using subject matter experts to establish the competencies and do the evaluations. uh, Where we had a thousand applications from human-centered designers and product managers. And we hired a lot of people out of that. Uh, And they, (laughs) amazingly, uh, almost all of them showed up, which was absolutely wonderful. And then we also merged with the Office of Accessible Services and Technology, uh, which had been under the CDO. When we started partnering on projects, it seemed obvious that we should join forces. And so that partnership grew very quickly. And now we are all working on a whole bunch of new CX people landing at about the same time, and uh, the former OST team integrating, building a culture together, uh, learning from one another.
3: Roughly, how many people were hired? A thousand applicants, even if it's 10 people, (laughs) it's a lot of people for any government agency. Do you you have any idea?
2: Yeah, we made 16 offers out of that, and uh, 13 people accepted. But also, wonderfully, uh, several people were hired across the department as well. FEMA hired out of that cert, uh, USCIS is hiring out of that cert, and there are probably other folks out there in the department who I don't even know for sure whether they came through that through that hiring action. Uh, we also brought in several people uh, to OCIO outside of the CEX directorate specifically, and so... It was a good propagation.
3: I just had a conversation with OPM Director Karen Ahuja about this exact thing. Why do we hire for one position when we all need very similar positions? So I think that's a great success story of one hire in action, 13 people, and then FEMA, USCS and others who also uh, added to that. So, so thank you for that. What else? How else are you growing? Are, are there tools? Are there other processes that are, are kind of growing out Over the last year, Uh, I imagine there are, so maybe what are they?
2: (laughs) In addition to hiring people, we are trying to build capacity and capability across the department in a number of ways. We know, for example, that dozens, possibly hundreds, maybe thousands of people across the department have been doing customer experience work for ages. They might have just been thinking about it and talking about it differently from me as a human-centered designer. And the vocabulary that I might use. So we want to find those people and make sure that they are supported, that they get rewarded for doing that work, and that they can improve their skills over time. So that's also how we're making practitioners. And there are a lot of people who are curious about this and working on uh, operationalizing customer experience. So helping them uh, not only have the mindset but also have the skill set and. Over the next couple of years, we will be working on a large tool set.
3: I think that's really important because you, even no matter how big your office and director can grow... DHS is the largest civilian agency. You're not going to be able to touch everyone. So you need the train-the-trainer model. You Definitely. need the trickle-down. You mentioned uh, at the beginning of our conversation, DHS has been focused on customer experience for quite some time, whether it's been officially called that or not. How are you measuring your progress today? Where What's your baseline, of maybe from a year ago when you started to today? And, and what, what kind of progress are you seeing?
2: The high impact service providers on the designated services have been measuring customer satisfaction and so have many of the other services for quite a while. So we're looking at those measures, obviously, but customer satisfaction doesn't tell the entire story of progress. So we are also working on uh, developing a way of assessing maturity in the same way that an IT program might look at program health and uh, using that view on CX maturity to identify opportunities for the component partners and their programs to mature, but also for us to identify services that we can provide. So we'll be looking at that over time. In addition, we are encouraging teams to look at outcomes versus outputs. There are so many incentives in the system for out. Puts,
3: right? Maybe an example would be helpful because I think we hear that a lot. But, mm-hmm. but what is an output? What is an outcome, right? So maybe is there an example that you would come to mind?
2: Well, so one of the, one of the outputs that we can talk about is, uh, is backlogs, right? There are backlogs all over the place. You could name a few at USCIS probably. Uh, there's a backlog at uh, CBP for global entry, that would be an output, right? Like just moving applications through a process and either accepting or denying them. But what we want to look at is what is the difference that having that benefit makes in the lives of the public? And what is the experience like in reaching that? So we can pop a customer satisfaction survey the moment you take the oath for your Naturalization, of course, you're going to be happy, but it might have taken you ten or fifteen or twenty years to get there. So, what was the experience like to get there? And
3: that's the outcome piece you're trying to focus on. To say it's not just they got through the process, yay, but it was arduous. It, I had to bring you my papers seventeen times, or I had to go to the in person twelve times and then call fourteen times. Like that's the outcome piece to okay how can we shrink that Mm -hmm. you mentioned as well as as other metrics how are you developing those metrics and and maybe give us do you have any examples you want to share about what what are some of those current or future metrics maybe or are
2: right now we're really working on what are the metrics that are available out there what are people collecting already and what do they know from that how are they being used and if they're part of a of something that looks like a feedback loop, is it actually a loop? Is that loop closed? What do we do with the data when we get it? And what's the what's the follow up? What is the transparency and accountability to the public uh, as well? And so that's the space that we're really exploring right now around all that.
3: Do hope or? expect that in time you'll create some CX dashboards. uh, You'll (laughs) somehow uh, give people a window into what that data says and how they compare to others who are in the similar world.
2: Yes, we are working on looking across those places where there are shared customers or at least the appearance of shared customers. Now, you asked this question about a CX dashboard. Yes, because partly because CIO Heisen loves a good dashboard. And so the question is how to get to a good dashboard. And we're working on some prototypes right now with the data that we have uh, that will help us really understand what the story is of those services.
1: Dana Chisnell is the Executive Director for Customer Experience at the Homeland Security Department. Speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller at a recent ACT-IAC conference. Check out Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still ahead, an NIH health executive is also a diversity champion. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. After more than 30 years at the National Institutes of Health, my next guest has been named for an award of a different sort. The Senior Executives Association has given her its 2023 Spirit of Excellence Award for Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Accessibility. National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke Executive Officer, Marianne Sofranco joins me now. Ms. Sofranco, good to have you with us.
0: Oh, thank you, Tom. It's great to be here.
1: And let's begin with your main job, and that is Executive Officer of the Institute. What does the Executive Officer do? It sounds like you keep the trains running for the scientists, (laughs) For
0: sure. So I would say that the executive officer role is really the infrastructure that does support the science that's done at NINDS. We basically support all of the administrative services, from funding uh, the science to purchasing the supplies and equipment needed for the science, to ensuring that our uh, investigators can travel, and making sure that the funding goes out to our extramural investigators. So we do all the administrative work behind the scenes to keep things moving forward and advancing the science.
1: There's something about NIH that keeps people there for entire careers or decades at a time, isn't there?
0: I think so. I think it's the mission, right? You know, how can you not get excited about the mission of really moving science forward and the whole bench to bedside concept where we actually are doing the research on site? as well as funding it in our extramural communities. And then you see that translate into health improvements across our nation and across the world. So it's a really exciting mission for sure.
1: All right. So let's get to the SEA award that you got, the Senior Executives Association, the Spirit of Excellence for Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Accessibility. I know that's an administrative policy word, and it's sort of pasted all over the place. What does it mean to you at the Institute and in your work?
0: Yeah, in my work at NIH, I also wear another hat, and that hat is the business liaison to our Project SEARCH program. And Project SEARCH is really a program that is a training-to-work program for young adults with disabilities. So being able to really spearhead and lead that program as part of the business partner at NIH is really, really rewarding. I mean, we have our numbers in that program are pretty substantial. Over the 13 years, the program has been at NIH. We have had over 100 interns that have come through the program. The program, as I mentioned, is really a a training to work program where we, as the business liaison piece, provide rotational opportunities. So really on the job training for interns. And it is 30 week program where they get three. In addition to classroom activities, they get three rotational opportunities to really learn skills, kind of hone skills so that they are really ready to work at the end of that program. Not everyone gets hired, but our numbers are really high. We have about a 78% higher rate out of that program. And so really being able to bring those young adults into the work environment is amazing. And it, it truly diversifies our work environment in so many different ways.
1: What are the techniques and strategies you have for getting the raw material in, the people themselves, to the program? How do you reach out?
0: We are one of the partners in that 3 pronged program. We actually partner with SEEK, which is our local adult rehabilitation partner, as well as Ivy Mount. And there's actually a process by which people apply to be part of this program. And the program, we have some sister programs and one in Montgomery County with the government and one at the Smithsonian in D.C. And so we partner with them to bring each about six interns per rotation cycle into the program. So it's usually somewhere in the ballpark of about 18 to 20 interns per year get selected out of many, many that apply. (laughs)
1: Sure. We're speaking with Marianne Sofranco. She's executive officer of the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke. She's also the recipient of the 2023 Spirit of Excellence Award for Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Accessibility from the Senior Executives Association. And the idea of disabilities or those with disabilities, that itself has become a wider field in recent years, hasn't it?
0: Absolutely. And, you know, the goal of the program that we were just talking about, Project Search, is not only to ensure that, you know, young adults with disabilities are trained so that they can be employable, but also that program actually teaches life skills so that we are creating an environment where people can start to live on their own and have the life skills to do so. So it's really a comprehensive program to support this young adult population.
1: And we understand, you know, for many years the government has hired people that are sight-impaired or blind or hearing-impaired or deaf, and we understand the types of accommodations, especially technically but also socially, that have to be made for people like that. But lately, and this kind of relates to the institute itself, the neurodiversity has come into the lexicon and people that are neurodiverse. Tell us the scope of that, what it means, and how those people get accommodated.
0: Well, you know, at NIH in general, we provide accommodations across the board for any staff who need them. So there's the process by which they can go through to get accommodations, and it's through our equity, diversity, and inclusion office. And I think that NIH is probably one of the best employers out there looking across our organization to see how we can accommodate people so that we can diversify our our staffing population. And, you know, those accommodations range, as you mentioned, from software that helps someone who can't see as well as others to software where someone can speak into it. We provide anyone that needs an accommodation. Um, We provide equipment, we provide chairs, furniture, whatever the need is. We definitely go above and beyond in trying to make sure that we can accommodate our staff.
1: But someone who might have autism at certain levels or a type of neurodiverse or neurodisability, I don't know what the correct word is, but...
0: Intellectual disabilities. That for sure was the focus of Project SEARCH. Most of our interns that actually come through that program are intellectually disabled. So being able to match their skill set with the needs that we have. And, you know, we actually have employment coaches on site who can look at our processes and break them down so that they can identify bits and pieces of processes that then the interns can do. And that actually frees up some of our other staff's time to do things at a different level. So, you know, it's a win-win. We're able to take activities off the plates of staff that can work at a higher level and identify those activities and figure out really effective ways for the interns to plug and play there.
1: Is it also so that people that might have intellectual disabilities have like super capabilities in very narrow areas.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. We definitely find that some of our interns that come through the program have unique skills and we're able to tap into those skills and figure out how to make them work. I mean, we have one intern currently who is really amazing with data. Although he struggles in some other areas, he's able to um, manipulate data, analyze data and provide really good, solid data platforms so that then someone with the expertise can kind of summarize that and put out a really nice product with the data that's being mined there. So, you know, we definitely try to hone in. We have experts, um, we have Instructors and project search employment consultants who are able to really work with the interns to tap into what their unique skills are, as well as train and teach them new skills. So it's a really nice program where we're able to match up interns with positions that really fit their skill set.
1: It sounds like you have two passions then, one for the work on behalf of the Institute itself and the other for this program that really benefits all of NIH.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I started out in administration at NIH, and I've been there doing this work for over 30 years. But for sure, Project SEARCH is a passion of mine, and I love to see positive outcomes. And, you know, we work really hard with our rehabilitation provider as well as our instructors from ivy mount to make the program really successful and thus far we're continuing to expand the program originally was uh, founded in the clinical center at nih and you know it was a uh, as you can imagine, pretty hospital-centric in terms of hospital operations, really lend themselves well to most of the skills that you're going to see. But we have expanded it into the institutes and we've tapped into that unique skill set that you've talked about with some of the interns to be able to do work that is, you know, uh, at a higher level. And so for sure, a passion, love to see it grow, love to see it be successful.
1: Marianne Safranco is executive officer of the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke. Thanks so much for joining me.
0: No, thank you so much. Great to be here and always lovely to talk about the program. Always excited to do that.
1: All right. And she's the recipient of the Senior Executives Association for its 2023 Spirit of Excellence Award for Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Accessibility. We'll post this interview at com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, contract spending is set to grow across the board in 2024. But first, a call for disruptive change in how the government assesses technology. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. A group called the National Network for Critical Technology Assessment is the latest to call for restoration of U.S. scientific and technology preeminence, The group, working under a National Science Foundation grant, says, and I quote, "...something disruptive is needed in how we fund the pathway from translational discovery to commercialization." Joining me with more, network member and Carnegie Mellon Engineering and Public Policy professor, Erica Fuchs. Dr. Fuchs, good to have you with us.
4: Great to be here.
1: And first of all, tell us about the National Network for Critical Technology Assessment. What is it and who's in it? And what's its purpose?
4: So I have been testifying for a number of years about the need for analytics to inform national technology strategy. And after the unprecedented chips and science legislation, which mandates that the U.S. government both have a national technology strategy, but also that NSF TIP evaluate what are the emerging challenges facing the U.S., and also how investments in key technologies could address those challenges, we had this incredible opportunity to bring together some of the top minds from across the country to ask, how exactly would you do that? So if you want me to build on that, we were able to bring together leaders in analytics to inform national technology strategy from 13 tier one research universities from across the country.
1: And what is it that they would analyze with their analytics?
4: <laughs> well, the question was, could we in this year demonstrate that data and analytics could tractably make a difference in informing how the federal government could invest in emerging technologies to enhance its national objectives. And what's interesting about the federal government is that it is not a firm. It doesn't have one objective to maximize. It's not just about profit. It's about national security. It's about the economy. It's about social well-being. So how do you have analytics that help you inform how to invest limited dollars across those different objectives?
1: Now, you might say early on in the semiconductor development, I mean, you know, going back to the 50s, there was some Defense Department money that helped lead to development of semiconductors, but then that industry exploded without any help from the government. It was just simply the entrepreneurship and great science and so on in the application of technology. So I guess the question is, how deeply should the government even be in deciding these things when... We have examples of markets deciding very well for themselves in creating U.S. leadership that's worldwide.
4: Well, first off, I would argue that it's not true that the federal government didn't subsequently continue to make very important funding of semiconductors right up to the very moment, uh, first off. Uh, but second, Look at the chips and science legislation right now and its focus on semiconductors. We have in our analytics shown, for example, that the U.S. has less access to what are called shuttle runs and multi-project wafers than other countries. And those are critical to being able to commercialize emerging devices. So we are at a disadvantage in being able to commercialize the next big thing. And that disadvantage doesn't require us to pour tons and tons of money into the problem. Actually, what the federal government is now doing is requiring that if firms are benefiting from our subsidies in establishing domestic facilities here, that they must also then give U.S. researchers more access to running their new designs through this facility. So there's a way that you can save money by acting smarter and ensuring our competitiveness.
1: So the essential recommendation of the report then is, well, you would create something called a CTA a critical technology assessment entity. Tell us what that is.
4: So I think I'm going to keep on my focus of cheap in a certain sense. How do we invest limited resources so that we can lead and ensure all of our national objectives are met in the best way possible with those limited resources? So we have analytic capabilities across our country We have leaders in academia working on these problems. We have leaders in the FFRDCs working on these problems. How do we synthesize that knowledge, but not only synthesize that knowledge, invest in those analytics in a way that brings together the very best capabilities from our country across disciplines, across institutions to inform federal investments? And the answer there is that we need an entity that perhaps similar to the way an ARPA or a DARPA acts is able to orchestrate Those analytic capabilities across economics, across engineering, in integrated multidisciplinary teams, across the FFRDCs that can be more problem-oriented to answer specific problems and also get out ahead of them. So take, for example, our battery uh, energy storage and critical materials group. Rather than us looking back and saying, for example, oh, gosh, we don't have enough masks or, oh, gosh, we don't have enough infant formula. We have a problem or no. Oh, no, we have a semiconductor shortage. That team was able to say, look, we can see right now (laughs) that we are heading straight into a shortage That will have economic and worker jobs impacts on the scale of the semiconductor shortage due to shortages in supply and critical materials. But there are actions we could take right now to get ourselves out of those problems. And that's the type of analytics we need to get out ahead of the problems and to be funding to get out ahead of the problems so that we're not caught off guard.
1: We're speaking with Dr. Erica Fuchs. She's an engineering and public policy professor at Carnegie Mellon University. And briefly, just tell us how this is a 158-page report that the network has come out with and how did you come up with it and whose hand is it in now and what do you expect to happen with it?
4: So the in some ways mandate or task that either NSF TIP gave to us or we gave to ourselves, I'm not sure who should be blamed for the disaster, uh, but it's not a disaster, was what could we do in one year to demonstrate how analytics could inform national investments and limited resources. So we had a four-week search time to say, across the country, who could possibly help us answer these questions? And so I was able to bring together different scholars from across the country to the table. And the question in terms of where we go from here is a huge one. Our country doesn't today have this capability in place. NSF-TIP is trying to invest in the future of this capability, even in the intellectual foundations that might be necessary. So how do we go from where we are right now to the next step which our country needs, which is really an agency with program managers or an entity with program managers that can fund, for example, in AI, bringing the top disciplines and institutions together to get out ahead of those problems, a program manager and semiconductors that can get out ahead of those problems. But then you need really an entity that has also a technical director that says, oh, wait a second, AI's future is going to be constrained by our inability to advance semiconductor devices. And that's soon, that's in the next five years. So how do we need those two groups to be working together? You need People out there in who are leading in terms of a government director who's saying, "Oh wait." What is the government? What are the policy questions government's asking? And how do we say, oh, gosh, this isn't even on government's radar or government's implemented something and we need to see if it's working or if we need to do something different. So defining the right problems to ask is an art. You need program managers who can do that. And you need an office that is able to orchestrate across those program managers, just like you do in DARPA. And then the question of how do you after having done this instantiation of saying look we can really make a difference we haven't solved the nor nor should we the science advisors challenge which is what should the country's national technology strategy be yeah so the
1: structure you envision really sounds almost like the latest arpa which is the energy one and the health one
4: what a fantastic question you ask I'm actually a scholar who has studied the DARPA mechanisms and how Mm -hmm. they work. So I think in the orchestration of analytics across the country, it is very ARPA-like. But what we have to do differently is ARPAs, while they are really good at orchestrating and implementation of emerging technologies, in the analytics case, we are trying to prevent surprise for the country but we are not going to be taking the same level of risks right uh, we we don't have a tolerance well, our goal is to spend our money more wisely so we need the orchestration of arpa but not the uh, and the prevention of surprise sure. but not the risk taking
1: sounds like a new bridge across the valley of death for technology absolutely Erica Fuchs is an engineering and public policy professor at Carnegie Mellon University and a member of the National Network for Critical Technology Assessment. Thanks so much for joining me.
4: Thank you very much, Tom.
1: And we'll post this interview along with a link to the network's report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, contract spending is set to grow across the board in 2024. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Bloomberg government predicts record contract spending once Congress passes appropriations bills for 2024. It sees $762 billion in total procurement, including $113 billion for professional services. With how companies need to prepare, we turn to federal sales and marketing consultant, Larry Allen. It's sort of a case of water, water everywhere. How do you get your drink, I guess? Fair to say, Larry? <laughs>
5: Tom, that's a good way to look at it. And Right now, uh, the water is kind of behind a dam as we wait for Congress to pass the final FY24 appropriations, something that increasingly looks like will happen early in calendar year 2024. In the meantime, however, companies should be preparing themselves to pursue that. And there are a couple of things to keep in mind. Aside from the obvious that you want to be in front of your customers and potential customers, you really want to make sure that you've got the contract vehicles that they may favor to make their buys, whether it's Alliant or NASA Soup or even a GSA Schedule. We know that a lot of buys get made through these standing indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity of vehicles, Tom. And I think that's going to be particularly true in 2024 because we're going to have such a compressed buying period, a compressed year. And so federal buyers are not only going to be looking for solutions, they're going to be looking for easy ways to get at those solutions. So that's something for industry to be thinking about now and develop a strategy on how to get the stuff over to a client quickly.
1: In other words, full and open just simply takes too long. So a task order under an existing vehicle is quicker.
5: That's exactly right. Full and open, you know, can take weeks. And if you have a buying season that is only going to be half of what it usually is, which is a sort of what we're looking at right now, then you're going to be looking at those standing contracts. You're also going to be looking at small business set-asides, we know, for example, that the administration has made a major endeavor to increase awards made to small disadvantaged businesses. So if you're one of those businesses, that's a good sign. If you're not, then maybe considering teaming up with one of those businesses could be a good strategy as well.
1: What is the status of CIO SP4 from NIH NITAC? That one was a single contributor to the rise in the number of protests last year, made them go up 22 percent. Most of the rise was because of protesting that deal, because soup seems to kind of sail along serenely, and GSA appears to be getting around its protest issues with new GWACs.
5: So, Tom, we all hope, I think, for smooth sailing for CIOSP4 in the coming year. All of the pre-award protests have been dealt with. The agency, NIH, is currently in the process of making award decisions. I think they'll probably make a number of award decisions fairly quickly. Predictably, there will almost certainly be post-award protests. Why not? There have been protests at every other stage of this acquisition. But we are getting closer to the finish line, and I think we can expect to see CIO SP4 up and running sometime Maybe in the first half of calendar year 2024, that would be good news. It's good news for buyers. It's also good news for the NITAC division of NIH, Tom, because no sooner do they get this one out the door than they have to turn their attention to the product oriented CIO CS contract, which itself is going to be up for renewal.
1: And that's a good point, is that the GSA. To some extent, NASA Soup and NIH and a few others, too, for that matter, have, you know, the GWAC for services is something we've seen emerge in the last few years, not just for products. And as you point out, you know, Bloomberg is predicting this $113 billion in professional services and R&D, $74 billion. There are GWACs for that, too.
5: Right. You know, if you're looking for technology or professional services, you opportunities, you're definitely going to want to have one of these standing IDIQ contracts, at least, Tom, or have access to it. And that's another part of this business, which is, look, if you don't have these contract vehicles or if you don't have the relationships, partner with people who do. You know, So often I talk to newer market entries and they're interested, of course, in getting in front of government officials, but sometimes you can be even more effective by getting in front of partners and showing your talents and how they can match together to enable you all to pursue business on the R and D front. If you're an established government contractor, you know, one of the things that I've kind of seen gain favor lately in the R and D world is the cyber program, Tom, the small business research program that's supposed to be for non-commercial items, items that have not been in current production. Uh, It seems that everyone has kind of caught the Cibber bug lately, particularly in the Department of Defense. So, again, if you're a small business, that's an interesting way to do some research and development and even potentially get something into current production. And if you're a large business, working with some small businesses that can work through that program is a good idea.
1: We're speaking with Larry Allen. He is president of Allen Federal Business Partners. And the other thing you're warning people about as the year approaches, and we've talked about this before, I think, the emergence of cybersecurity rules for contractors. There's a big slew of them coming from Homeland Security, and probably contractors ought to be in control of their cyber, but now they've got to be.
5: Well, they really do, Tom. We've been talking about CMMC over at the Department of Defense Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification for about five years now. And we always knew that the Department of Homeland Security was coming right behind DOD, and here they are. They announced recently that they are going to use a cybersecurity readiness assessment to evaluate whether contractors bidding on DHS business have appropriate cyber defenses in place before they make contract awards. So, Tom, this means that if you're a business of any size, uh, you have to make sure that you've done your so-called cyber hygiene, that you've got verifiable cybersecurity protections, policies in place, things of that nature. And, of course, these aren't going to be the exact same types of approaches that DOD is using for CMMC, they're going to be DHS's own standards. But the good news is that industry can comment on the draft cybersecurity readiness approach DHS published in SAM on the November 1st, the Draft statements, and they're basically asking, if not begging, for contractors to submit comments. Comments, I think, are due the third week of November. So you've got a little bit of time, but not much. But if you do business with the Department of Defense, uh, you're going to have to know about the cybersecurity readiness assessment, make sure that you're going to be able to meet the requirements for whatever type of business you're going after, and be able to prove it to anybody at DHS that's looking.
1: So we've got these cyber requirements coming, and CMMC could eventually actually take a grip on the industry. So whether it's civilian or a defense, that's something that contractors are going to have to do. Plus, you've got this large amount of money for contracting coming really late in the fiscal. We don't know what the political situation will produce. It could be a CR through early next calendar year, which makes for a very short fiscal year, if there is a fiscal year. Then contractors... They've got some homework to do, I guess, bottom line.
5: Tom, there really is a lot of homework to be done. Uh, If you look at the federal market at first blush right now, you might say, well, hey, there's not a lot of activity going on there right now. We need to kind of wait around until Congress decides to pass some appropriations bills. Nothing could be further from the truth. This is the time where you should be looking into opportunities that your customers pretty much know they're going to have the funding for. Uh, They're going to be able to and want to take preliminary steps so that they have as much done in an early manner as they possibly can so that when the money hits, they can go ahead and move forward with the acquisition. So if you're waiting until then, you're going to be way behind the curve.
1: Larry Allen is president of Allen Federal Business Partners. As always, thanks so much.
5: Tom, thank you, and I wish your listeners happy selling.
1: We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. The Department of Homeland Security's financial management has been on the government accountability office's high risk list since DHS was born in 2003. And that's something the nominee to serve as DHS's chief financial officer wants to change once and for all. We get more now from Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Justin, let's start with who this CFO nominee is. Where does he come from, and how does he think he's going to get this done if he's confirmed?
6: Yeah, his name is Jeff Resmovic. He's, uh, of course, the nominee to serve as DHS's CFO, and he's well acquainted with the inner workings of DHS. He's spent the last 13 years at the department. He's currently the associate deputy undersecretary for management, and he was previously DHS's deputy chief of staff. So he's kind of got that cross-departmental view as well. He testified before the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee last week as as part of a nomination hearing. And, of course, Rezmovic, if confirmed, would oversee the finances of sprawling DHS, which has an annual budget of more than $100 billion. He was asked about how IT and financial management have been on GAO's high-risk list, as you mentioned, since the department was created in 2003. Here's what he said. We've
7: got to get off the GAO high-risk list. If confirmed as the department's CFO, among my greatest priorities will be moving forward with financial systems modernization. Right now, we have approximately 40% of the department's spending occurring on modern integrated financial systems. And of course, we have to get to 100%.
1: Yeah, so how is that project going, financial systems modernization? Because it's really a matter of all the components modernizing and somehow integrating it, I guess.
6: That's right, yeah. And they're very much still in the throes of it. Uh, GAO reported on this in the latest version of its high-risk list released earlier this year. It, It found DHS really has the leadership commitment as they measure it to get behind these financial systems modernization efforts, but they'll need more uh, quote-unquote capacity, essentially resources, to see through financial systems modernization. Uh, Right now, the two big ones that are still hanging out there are the Federal Emergency Management Agency and Immigration and Customs Enforcement. They are looking at upgrading their financial systems here in the next few years. The Coast Guard just finished rolling out its new financial system, but actually a a 2022 audit found a material weakness with ineffective design controls. So there's some challenges there with one of the most recent financial uh, systems modernization. Resmovic says he will work closely with DHS Chief Information Officer Eric Heisen on these modernization efforts, which are so important to kind of getting DHS's financial house in order. Here's Resmovic again.
7: I would want to make sure that we are incorporating the right modernization projects through our regular budget cycles would work closely with the CAO on that. And when it comes to issues that arise in between budget cycles, making sure that we have the tools and resources that you have helped to make available to us to include the technology modernization fund and the non-recurring expense
1: fund. Well, that's all well and good, but what else does he have to do because there are systems in place to count the beans now And I don't think it's entirely an IT problem that they are not able to get a full financial accounting picture and therefore are on the high risk list. Or is it simply the IT? I mean, what else does he say he wants to worry about?
6: No, you're right. It's it's kind of a combination of, of both. The modernization is really important, as Reznovic pointed out. But uh, you know, DHS has received an, a clean, audit opinion on its financial statements for the last ten consecutive years. But it's also received a separate adverse opinion on its internal controls over financial reporting for the last decade every year for the last decade. Uh, that's because, according to GAO. DHS did not design and fully implement control activities with reasonable assurance that these systems would produce reliable reporting of uh, financial information. And and then there's also internal control weaknesses in the area of IT controls and information systems. Uh, So that's that brings that whole IT aspect back in. And then even within the last year, a new issue has popped up with insurance liabilities where the auditor reported that area as a material weakness for DHS in fiscal 2021. So those are some of the issues uh, that Resmovic will have to to oversee as CFO
1: if he's confirmed. Resmovic is not the only nominee there before the Senate. You also heard last week a hearing for Harry Coker, And he's nominated to be the next national cyber director. And what happened there? What's his outlook for the job?
6: Yeah, he would uh, take over for acting national cyber director Kemble Walden. The first uh, Senate confirmed NCD, Chris Inglis, stepped down earlier this year. Coker is a retired naval officer. He served in high-level positions at the Central Intelligence Agency and the National Security Agency. And if he's confirmed, he'd be responsible for continuing to implement the Biden administration's national cyber strategy that was released earlier this year. Over the summer, the Biden administration released a whole implementation plan with dozens of actions that agencies are taking. If he's confirmed, Coker would be kind of sitting over all of that making sure that agencies are actually implementing it during the hearing he was asked a lot about building up the cyber workforce uh and he talked about not just working with federal agencies but with state and local governments on the issue and he also discussed an idea that's been percolating across government about how many cyber jobs probably don't require shouldn't require a college degree here's what he said
8: uh, we need to change the way we look at vacancy notices job questionnaires In cyber, it should not be a requirement for everyone to have a four-year degree. You can get that cyber education without going through a a four-year college. And so, again, we need to deliver that message uh, broadly and deeply.
1: Yeah, you just have to give the candidates the third degree, but they don't have to have a four-year degree. And I'm sure this must have come up at the hearing because it's coming up in so many other different venues on Capitol Hill, so many other issues. Artificial intelligence and the impact of that on cyber it's probably the biggest thing besides quantum.
6: Yeah, he w- he was indeed asked about that as you said uh You know, this has become such a hot button issue, especially since President Biden issued his executive order last week, you know, the national cyber director under that EO would have a seat on the White House's Artificial Intelligence Council, uh, as with a lot of other folks. But it's a pretty big council. But that national cyber director would be there. And of course, they would be looking at, you know, the cybersecurity risks when it comes to AI. And there are many. But Coker, during the hearing when he was asked about it, chose to focus more on the potential benefits of AI to the security field apologize for the vote, Senate vote alarms that you'll hear during this clip.
8: There is an awful lot of data that is uh, not just available, but that is essential uh, to cybersecurity. Uh, So much so that big data analytics need artificial intelligence capability to process through those mounds of data and turn it into actionable intelligence in a timely manner. That's a direct area in which Artificial intelligence can and must support cybersecurity.
1: And that hearing was fairly favorable?
6: That's right, yeah. Both Harry Coker and and, uh, Jeff Resmovic, who we heard from earlier, didn't really face any outspoken opposition. So we'll see how those
1: those nominations actually go. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday, thanks so much. All right, you got it, Tom. And be sure to check out Justin's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with FederalNewsNetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin.